one of Tolkien's justifications for writing creative fantasy and being involved in it is because not only are we created beings, but we're created in the image of a creator. So we're called to be as creative as possible. And so he, along with McDonald, realized that we can't create ex nihilo, uh, but he termed it sub-creation. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné. And today, I'm joined by a colleague in the Department of Communications, Dr. John Hasso. Uh, so welcome, John. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. That's great. And um, you recently gave a talk on campus uh, about kind of uh, the rhetoric of fairyland and Chesterton and Tolkien. And, uh, and I'd just love to kind of begin maybe with a provocative question, right, which is, I mean, it seems like a lot of people think we have so many real problems in the world that are pressing. We have political crises. We have cultural crises. Uh, we have global crises and all these elements. Uh, so if this is the case, then, you know, why should we spend time studying fantasy literature? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a valid question and one that's been asked for uh, a long time in modernity, and uh, especially at a liberal arts uh, institution. Uh, it's important to remember that it is, it's part of the tradition, right? So there's just, you know, in some ways, it's that simple, but I think it's an important part of the tradition, especially as the modern age has uh, you know, developed, uh, because it's, it's pushed against some of the you know, overt materialism, right? It's a, it, the, the modern fantasy literature is sort of birthed from the, uh, the romantic period and is seen as uh, there's something more important than simply the material realities we see around us. Um, and so uh, with cultural conflict, mm -hmm. the ability to kind of delve into uh, ways of giving voice to some of these conflicts and imagining uh, better futures or simply uh, escaping <laughs> some of the brutal realities for a while uh, are, are important. So anything from just taking a break to pondering and speculating about what world, you know, what the world could be like uh, in, in, you know, in different ways, I think is, is important. Interesting. That's really, that is really fascinating in a way that maybe if our understanding of the world is kind of overly limited by uh, materialism or really just seeing uh, kind of maybe almost like the oppressive weight mm -hmm. of problems, uh, then in some ways, right, our imagination for solving them becomes limited. Yes, yeah, and so in a lot of ways, it is a, uh, a development of our creative faculties that could later be applied uh, to these quote-unquote real-world problems. Mm. Um, and in other ways, it might give voice to real problems that we are neglecting uh, because of our sort of focus on, on uh, the material world. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that kind of strikes me is that I think sometimes we contrast storytelling and reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we think that uh, maybe, you know, we can use our reason when we do science or logic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we just use our imagination uh, when we tell stories or read literature. Uh, but it, it dawns on me that I think um, that there's a strong sense that there's nothing more rational mm -hmm. than storytelling mm -hmm. and listening to stories. Uh, and sometimes maybe even if you try to tell your dog a story, uh, right, the dog may fall asleep uh, on your lap or yeah. something, uh, <laughs> but the dog really doesn't get the story. Yes. And so I think there's something here that uh, storytelling in some ways is, is a great use of reason. Mm -hmm. 
So how have you seen that in some of the work that you've done? Yeah. And so there's a, an ancient answer and a more modern answer. Okay. Uh, with, uh, in, in Plato's Gorgias, uh, you know, it's a dialogue on rhetoric and, and it's critical. It's probably his most dia- critical dialogue on, on, on rhetoric. Uh, but he ends it uh, with what he says is, is a logos, right? Is an account, even though people might think it's a mythos or a tale or a story. Uh, he's going to tell it as if it were true and a true logos, right? Mm-hmm. And his, it's not a rational argument. It is a, uh, a scatological myth about you know him him going into uh, the underworld and being judged and what it's like for everyone it's it's a it's a you know kind of parable on the final judgment okay. uh, and so uh, and how words won't help there and no material goods will help there but just your naked soul is judged and so yes. that's you know he ends on that story for a rational point right interesting uh, yeah and then the modern uh, George MacDonald a, a fairy uh, fairy story author uh, also did a lot of historical fiction um, wrote a piece on the cultivation of the imagination and pointed out that, yeah, the imagination is important for sciences, is important for telling history. Otherwise, you just have observations, right? If you're limited by the facts that you see, uh, you can't invent hypotheses, right? Uh, Mm. He gives a story Mm. of uh, one of his colleagues who was a mathematician who said, yeah, because of my ability to to imagine, you know, came up with a new theorem for algebra. And uh, he doesn't name him the footnote, but I'm almost completely sure that that is uh, Lewis Carroll. Uh, he's one of his friends. He, oh, he was wow. a logician and a mathematician. Oh, okay. And the same thing that allowed him to write Alice in Wonderland were the faculties that allowed him to uh, imagine how uh, algebra worked. You know? So really then our whole kind of encounter with the world is both through the images and sensible realities of the world, the stories we hear, and then our ability to reflect upon them, ask questions about them. <laughs> yes. So in some ways it's kind of almost yeah, you know, maybe a little bit of, you know, the wisdom of children in this. Sure. Children observe things and they ask why. Yes. And they love stories. Yes. Right. And uh, I think it reminds me, I think it's uh, C.S. Lewis in his dedication to Lion, the Witch, and the mm-hmm. Wardrobe. He dedicates it to his goddaughter, mm-hmm. um, Lucy, yeah. right, Lucy Barfield. And he says something along the lines that, um, you know, I wrote this for you when you were younger, but now that it's published, you're too old to read, mm-hmm. um, you know, fairy tales. But hopefully when you get old again, then you'll begin <laughs> reading them. Yes. Uh, and it's kind of recovering that sense of questioning mm-hmm. uh, and and somehow trying to find a way that those deeper questions are 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 kind of part of our nature and and we often need to hear stories to tell us about the but somehow about, about what's the truth about the world that we can't get on our own yeah no I, I would completely agree um, you know if we think about like you know someone might bring up something like the allegory of the cave right of course it's an allegory it's a story yes. but it is yeah. you know being so focused on what's projected in front of us right and if you escape the cave when yeah. you come back down you need an art of what he calls a periagoge or turning around how mm-hmm. do you get somebody distracted from the shadows on the wall to even look and the other direction, right? And I would yeah. say that that is, you know, the sort of the rhetorical art, uh, the art of storytelling, the art of, you know, moving somebody quickly to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, look one way instead of another. Yeah, and maybe that's another way of putting it is that we're always already in a world of images. Yes. yes. Right. Um, so really, the question is, do we have good images or bad images, <laughs> yeah. or, or you might even maybe say effective images mm-hmm. or ineffective images, mm-hmm. right? Ones that are actually healthy and helping us. Or we also have a lot of, you know, false images. Yes. Yeah. Which, you know, again, the, you know, the, the terms, the sort of, you know, Greek root words here that we might be looking at are, you know, icons or, or idols, right? You know, yes. and so, uh, you know, to what degree uh, is what they're representing true uh, versus, you know, if, if, if they're all 
not the things themselves, then mm -hmm. are they representing true things or false things? Yes, yes. I think it is a kind of an interesting way of, even we can look at all of creation, yeah. right? Creation itself is in a way, some kind of image mm -hmm. of the creator, mm -hmm. And therefore, it can be an icon yes. of, of the wonder. We can kind of see the beauty of nature, and we can wonder at the wonder of the creator mm -hmm. that somehow made everything, right? Or we can kind of turn creation into, right, an idol and mm -hmm. expect it to satisfy us. Yes. I mean, that, that's sort of you know, one of Tolkien's justifications for, for writing creative fantasy and being involved in it is because not only are we created beings, but we're created in the image of a creator. So we're called yes. to be uh, as creative as possible. And so he, mm. along with McDonald, realized that we can't create ex nihilo, uh, but he termed, the, he termed it sub-creation, right? The ability oh. to uh, weave together, you know, things that were extant in ways that are creative. Oh. You, can you say more about sub-creation? I mean, that seems like a really important idea. Yeah, yeah that's one of the key, you know, so, uh, you know, in uh, his essay on, on fairy stories, Tolkien uh, gives a, a brief clip of a, of a poem called Mythopoeia, uh, so you know, myth-making, uh, okay. and you know, he claims that this is, this is our birthright, right? Mm. Uh, we are um, you know, created beings that are called to uh, participate in creation, and not just in the things of creation, mm -hmm. but in the act of creation itself, right? And so uh, the probably creative act you know, in its highest form for Tolkien uh, would be the story, right? Would be the world building, would mm. be, um, you know, starting kind of from intellectual scratch and building up from uh, the raw materials that are around us, right? Okay. You know, that reminds me a little bit of, is it uh, Chesterton in his Everlasting Man, uh, right? He tells the story of when he begins to, when you first see kind of human beings, evidence of human beings, uh, they're in caves and they do these weird things, <laughs> which are totally unlike our image of the caveman, yeah. right? They sit around and paint, yeah. no, right? Like, and uh, I did in, in some of the classes I do, I'll actually show, we have, if you just go online, you can find images really all over the globe mm -hmm. uh, from somewhere between like 15,000 to 30,000 years ago of paintings on walls of, of these caves. And it's, right, human beings paint. Yeah. And yeah. I think Chesterton <laughs> says, right, this art is the signature of man. Um, could you explain that more? Well, I don't know if I can explain it, but yeah, I, mean, I would say, yeah, I mean, it is this idea that we are, uh, you know, from our earliest history that we mm -hmm. can detect, we are interested in uh, storytelling, in depicting mm -hmm. images, um, in some way recording what's going around us, but, you know, not necessarily in these faithful material ways, right? You know, mm -hmm. no one's going, we can look at the images and, you know, of, of cave drawings and recognize them, but wow. not yeah. necessarily, you know, they're not, they're not one-to-one, -one, you know, mm -hmm. correspondences uh, between the image and, and the things around us, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So if, if we then... The idea you're suggesting here of sub-creation. So Tolkien suggests that when we tell stories, we're kind of imitating the creator yeah. and we're creating like a secondary creation, right? Yeah. A creation within the first creation. What do you think in a way can go wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, and, and Tolkien you know, talks about it uh, as well. And a lot of things can go wrong. Uh, you know, one of the simple things is it's not easy to do. Right. Uh, it, some people yes. think it's the easiest kind of writing because you can just make up anything, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not going to be satisfactory if it doesn't have mm -hmm. what he calls like, some sort of you know, inner coherence. Right. Yeah. Um, it has to have a, a logic that sustains it. Uh, and George McDonald was talking about this as well. And is, you know, the, the cultivation of the imagination. Uh, you have to have a logic that uh, works within the fairy land or the fairy story or the mm -hmm. fantasy world that you're building or else um, it's not going to ring true. 
right? Okay. Um, and so there's that simple sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can, I mean, you can tell bad stories, right? One sense, they're ineffective. Uh, the other sense, they dream up worlds that we wouldn't want to live in uh, or that uh-huh. we shouldn't want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all their power, that can be negative. But mm-hmm. George McDonald makes, I think, a, a really good point, which is the key here isn't to suppress the imagination because when you do, you can't surgically remove it. You just... Mm-hmm bubble it up into untrained, perhaps dark imaginations that then imagine these worlds, uh, not because they want to, but because they've never been fostered. Mm -hmm. And there was a, I think you're probably familiar with that uh, survey, I think of, I think it was in England of uh, the the best hundred books of the 20th century and uh, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. I think was, was the number one, (laughs) right? Yeah, you can't kind of shocked everyone. But so, you know, what is it about his work um, right, this great Lord of the Rings trilogy, this great myth that's been turned into uh, movies, and uh, I guess even right now is continuing yeah. to be popular, right, <laughs> on uh, on Amazon, some some version of it mm-hmm. that uh, we can maybe talk about another day, <laughs> not today. Um, but what what is it about his work that uh, is so pop, so attractive to people? Yeah, I mean, I think it is hitting on this sort of uh, the aridness of the imagination as a faculty it's cultivated, right, in school and uh, learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we desire, uh, he had talked about this sort of desire uh, in On Fairy Stories to to have converse with, with other people uh, or to see other times, right? Mm-hmm. And so something like The Lord of the Rings speaks to both those desires, you know, to, uh-huh. to, to go to distant lands, um, to talk to people who are other than human uh, and to see times other than the ones that we are in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, I think uh, we had much more access to pre-modernity, uh, you know, whether or not it was intentional or if it was just the types of stories that we were telling and the, the sorts of things that we could imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, really, you know, I think that you, know, you see Tolkien as sort of more this, this culmination of this tradition. Uh, Interesting. That, yeah, than, than, um, than the beginning. I think, unfortunately, okay. mm-hmm. uh, you know, as the culmination, we get a lot of imitators of Tolkien afterwards. And so creative fantasy does not become that creative. Okay. If you read the sort of, you know, pre-fantasy writers before Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, um, you get things that are totally alien, totally different. And, uh, you know, and, and things that are, are imitations of, you know, just fairy stories as well. So you get the sort of soft, fun, trite sort of stuff. But you also get, you know, imaginative worlds that uh, don't talk about dwarves, <laughs> don't have elves in them, you know, mm-hmm. are, are, are something uh, other than. And I think Tolkien appreciated that sort of creativity more than, ah, oh, here are the elves, here are the dwarves, here's my mm. other, you know, here's my creative world, which just happens to be a sub-sub Tolkien world. You know? Interesting. And so these kind of great stories uh, that he tells, it's almost like we go on an adventure. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there's so many uh, people today that kind of lack that adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and maybe they find it in video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they find it occasionally in, you know, watching Netflix. Um but it seems more and more that people don't find it, it. People struggle to find it in their work. Yes. They often struggle to find it in relationships. Uh, I think many young people f- sometimes struggle to find it in school. Yes. <laughs> right. So how would you, uh, what, I mean, I guess what, what, what is it about? Like how is reading a story? And anyway, if I'm going to put it somewhat provocatively, yeah. right? Like how is reading a story going to help me 
<laughs> um, you know, find kind of an adventure in my life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting insofar as you look back and you look at the tradition, sometimes we can just say, this is a tradition of storytelling, right? Okay. Um, and this this is, you know, imitative or built off that, uh, you know, this work and that work. Um, but if we can start seeing what some of the authors are trying to do, uh, there are at least, I think, uh, good arguments for the fact that someone like Plato in the Republic uh, is, you know, learning the Apology and some other places, holding up Socrates as a, a new hero and that the Republic yeah. is a sort of odyssey, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then we go to St. Augustine's Confession and, you know, at one time, you know, he seems to be criticizing the old epics, but at the same time, he's writing a new epic, right? A spiritual yes. odyssey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, if we, you know, I would, I would posit to be provocative again, if we, yeah. you know, uh, could cultivate the art of story a little bit more, mm-hmm. we wouldn't just lament the loss of some of these great stories. We'd be able to adapt and, uh, you know, appropriate what's good about the tradition of storytelling mm-hmm. and uh, give it to, you know, our own time. And that, that sort of longing for good stories would be, uh, you know, addressed a little more positively. Yeah, I, I heard that, I think it was George Lucas, when he was writing uh, the original um, Star Wars trilogy, he actually studied a lot of mm-hmm. right myth. Um, you remember the, the name? Uh, was uh, Who was the person he was studying? Uh, uh, so uh, Joseph Campbell, I think. Yeah, he Joseph was, yeah, Campbell. Yeah. But he's actually, so he was deliberately trying to recover yeah. uh, a sense of these classical myths, mm-hmm. these classical stories, yeah. and try to write a story. Yeah, uh, And it's interesting that, uh, in some ways, you know, that story, which had the worst special effects, <laughs> right, of any yeah. of them. It is, yeah, it's really difficult. Is also the one that was the most kind of compelling. Yeah. yeah. And the one to which later stories are said, oh, this isn't as good, even though the CGI is yeah. better. Yeah. But somehow the story put us on this adventure, yeah, this, no, this quest. I'm, I'm oh. laughing because, you know, I'm a big Star Wars fan from, oh, okay. from, from back, yeah. from, uh, you know, from, from childhood and going back, especially after the sort of disastrous prequel trilogy, <laughs> um, you know, going back and watching the original, I'm like, you know, maybe it wasn't that good, but I still love <laughs> yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was like looking at his inspirations were something with, that actually made me think, yeah, maybe I could even tell stories because you look at the yeah, Joseph Campbell, yeah. you look at the, the myths, but then you see also he's inspired by the C.S. Lewis space trilogy, uh, Paralandria, Out of the Silent Planet, and you yes. see, you know, and the, that hideous strength, and you see, you're like, oh, okay. And also, like, uh, the Searchers, you know, Westerns, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Hidden Fortress, Samurai movie, and you start looking at these sources, and then you read someone like on Fairy Stories, J.R. Tolkien's on Fairy Stories, mm-hmm. and uh, he talks about, you can't create a new leaf, but you can look back at the tree of story or dip into the soup of story and bring something else new. So yeah. knowing these stories is what helps to, or at least in part, what helps to, you know, cultivate new stories, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, Appreciating yeah. them for, for substance, you know, oh, not just as diversion. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And in some ways, if what you said about subcreation is true, then the best of stories are not kind of, I mean, they're not just like made up, so yes. to speak. They're imitations yeah. of the reality. Yes. Yeah. And so it's almost like in the story, we see something about reality that we couldn't see yeah. until uh, it's there. So the story ends up becoming kind of somewhat true, because we live in the same creation, <laughs> right, that Homer did. Yeah. Yes. So some of the stories, when we hear, like, I don't you know, when, when you hear about the, the wrath of Achilles mm-hmm. in the Iliad, and you kind of see how he can't get his anger under control, mm-hmm. and it ends up hurting him, uh, so many people in the story, his mm-hmm. best friend is killed because his anger and mm-hmm. resentment and then, you know, we look at our own lives, and we begin to say, oh, wait a second, how has my, how have my resentments mm-hmm. and my angers 
hurt myself, right, and hurt other people. Yeah, and even more sort of essentially, right, his problem, he admits, is knowing what he should do and not doing it. Right. Yeah. And so how many times, you know, so even if we haven't had wrath or revenge on our mm -hmm. mind, how many times have we known the th right thing to do and then yeah. not acted on that? Like seen it in the face mm -hmm. and say, but I'm just not motivated to, yeah. to do the thing. Yeah. Right? One, one, one quick thing before we take a break. I noticed in, I've just been listening to Lord of the Rings again. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how many times the characters struggle to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, I think there's a way in which sometimes maybe in modernity, we think there is a right decision. Yeah. And if we get enough information, we can make it. Yes. And I think this, of course, is just largely not true. Yeah. In the world, there is always more information. Yeah. There's more information than we could ever take in at once. Yeah. And so to a certain extent, every decision carries a risk. Yes. Right? We can't control the outcomes. Not every outcome is foreseeable. We have to somewhat hazard. Yeah. I, I yeah. guess. Yeah, and that and leads so, to like yeah. the, the other the other part, right? The sort of rhetorical part. Uh, we've lost the arts of probable reasoning, right? We we wow. think that it's all deductive, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, and certain and necessary. But really, most of our practical decisions are what's likely to happen, mm -hmm. right? Out of all the possible yeah. outcomes, what's the best way to try to bring about one that's good? Yeah, and and in some ways that gives us a certain amount of freedom, yeah. recognizing that we will make mistakes. Like one of the beauty in the in the Lord of the Rings story is many of the characters they don't know quite what mm -hmm. to do, and sometimes they make wrong decisions, and yet they're still heroes. Yes, they're still heroes, not because they always make the right decisions, but because they don't give up. Yeah, they they hazard, um, like yeah. you said, they hazard the right the the right decision, and sometimes it's yeah. not, and yeah. you know they have to deal. And with when that. we're working with young people, I think so often sometimes people feel the stress that they have to make the right decision about which courses, like what major to do, what career to yeah. go in, because the future of their life and perhaps the future of the world, the future of the church, the future of everything is kind of dependent upon them getting it right. And yeah. kind of one of the beauties is, is we never get it right. Yeah. And that that's okay. It's the uh, willingness to stick to it. Yeah. It's the willingness not to give up, to continue to try to seek the good mm -hmm. in, in the midst of our lives, right? To continue in the midst of suffering and mistakes, yeah. to still say fundamentally, right, it is good that we are here, right? You know, you know, God, this is a good creation you've given us despite the mess we've made of it. Yep. Yep. No, I, I completely agree. And it's just so it's it's humorous when a student has these different options. They're like, what should I do? And I ask them which they want to yeah. do. And they're like, I'm not sure. I'm like, well, would you be equally happy with either? And they're like, yeah, sure. Then I'm like, we'll flip a coin. I mean, just, <laughs> just, just, just make it. If, if one compels yeah. you, take that one. Mm -hmm. But if not, then, you know, yeah, just like close your eyes, point, and there you go. You made a decision. So, Well, that's great. Let's take a quick break. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Dr. Hasso, um, please tell, uh, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in Right, st studying fantasy literature and rhetoric. Yeah. Well, it was always a, a personal sort of interest of mine, something I sort of did, you know, in my spare time. Okay. Um, and uh, the rhetoric was, you know, something that I, I came to after I, you know, I started out as a theater major and I was okay. like, I don't want to study that. Wow. Um, and I was also in debate and forensics. I was like, I could do this and do anything. And the first work I read was the Gorgias. And I was like, all right. Um, but I get the joke because this is also very effectively written. Uh, so I double majored in philosophy.
philosophy at the time <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and stayed with the rhetoric. Um, as I saw connections and learned more about the Inklings uh, and saw their work on language, uh, you know, Owen Barfield uh, and some of the critical stuff that Tolkien and, and Lewis were doing, I realized that there was a connection there. And uh, as I worked backwards uh, from their influences to, you know, uh, George MacDonald and Andrew Lang and, uh, you know, some of uh, the other sort of pre-Tolkien writers, uh, William Morris, and read some of their critical works, I was like, oh, there's a whole project here. Um, and then when I was at Penn State, I was mm-hmm. in an English department doing interdisciplinary rhetoric, and I said I could put together a, a syllabus on uh, you know fantasy, modern fantasy, its birth and its sort of uh, rhetorical impact, uh, you know how it was trying to make these arguments and do these things in society. Um, and they let me do that. It was a popular class. I was able to teach it twice, and before I left, I was scheduled to teach it as a grad course. Um, okay. And then wow. yeah, and then then I came here and uh, you know found a, a similar audience to to you know who's interested in these in these works. And uh, from teaching, I've turned into uh, scholarship. And so it's probably the next phase of things that I'm going to be doing uh, academic work on. It seems that many people today have a mistrust of rhetoric. You know, that's just rhetoric or, you know, don't let the rhetoric take you away from the facts or something. Um, what would you... I mean, is, is, is rhetoric bad? Yeah, I mean, so the the, the fantasy um, analogy I use in my rhetoric class is, uh, you know, use the, the Harry Potter analogy of it's both the dark arts and defense against the dark arts, right? Um, really, it's unique in, so, in such, or a Star Wars, you know, there's the dark side and light side of the force. <laughs> um, it's unique in such that uh, its power is not going to be checked except for by uh, a, a good rhetoric. Uh, I think uh, Gorgias in his Encomium of Helen makes a similar argument, which is, he blames rhetoric for uh, or persuasion uh, for uh, stealing Helen away, uh, but he's also a sophist. And I asked my students, why would he do that? And they're like, oh, because if there's that out there, uh, you have to be able to, to uh, meet it. Right. Uh, as, as a sort of uh, self-defense. Yes. But also um, there's lots of eloquent sort of myths from Plato and Cicero uh, and Isocrates about uh, just the fact that we do it. We can't live without persuasion. We can't live without talking with people and trying to get them to commune with each other uh, to build societies and build laws. So it is the dark arts, defense against the dark arts, but used properly, it's also uh, this constructive tool that's at the uh, foundation of society. So that maybe what I hear you saying is that it's kind of like insofar as we use words, we're necessarily being rhetorical and we're always trying to communicate something like what we want and how we see the world. Uh, and other people, of course, are communicating to us yes. with words. Yes. And which means they're using rhetoric as well. So if we don't you know, if we don't study rhetoric or try to somehow use rhetoric effectively, we're just using rhetoric poorly. Yes. Or being trapped by others. Yeah, it's like the imagination. If you try to suppress it, it's just going to be used anyway and used poorly. And if somebody else can master it, then used potentially against you unless they're a good person. I think Cicero kind of uh, coined it the best. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase here. Uh, he was talking, you know, in the beginning of his On Invention or De Inventione, he says, I've often thought about if it's a good or a bad. Um, and he boiled it down to uh, the pair of wisdom and eloquence, right? Uh, wisdom without eloquence is what he called, you know, weak, ineffective, right? Uh, mm-hmm. can, can benefit an individual, but hardly ever of his benefit of society. But eloquence without wisdom can be potentially harmful, destructive, Mm -hmm. right? So what you want is that union of the ability to sort of 
think and calculate and strategize, uh, but then also uh, be able to communicate with others and join with others in uh, productive endeavors. Mm-hmm. And in an art society today, it seems like we have right tons of communications, media, mm-hmm. we have tons of TV, tons of marketing. We kind of are never away from marketing. Uh, there's lots of jobs in marketing. Um, you know, can can marketing be good? Uh, I, I believe so. I mean, I'm, that's not my area of expertise, but in teaching media society in the church, um, a lot of what the church has to say about media, you know, kind of continues this conversation about rhetoric. And, you know, insofar as we want healthy economies and we want people to have access to good products, then marketing is a good, right? Yeah. Um, insofar as it tells the truth uh, about, and it can be entertaining, uh, you know, and it can be, you know, can also serve the person, uh, the, the, the businesses. Uh, but insofar as it brings to the fore products and experiences and other sort of consumer goods that people are wanting that are good for them, or at least not bad, then yeah, it can be a good, uh, it can, you know, it's good to have a healthy economy. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> um, it's, it's not good when your society is, is impoverished. Right. So. Yeah. On, on a slightly different uh, note, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his, he has an essay or a sermon that was originally given, The Weight of Glory. Mm-hmm. Um, but he reminded, reminds me at one time where he says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? <laughs> and he says, remember your fairy tales. He says that like spells are not only uh, used for um, you know casting enchantments, but also breaking them. Mm-hmm. And I think there he says that you and I have been under uh, the enchantment of worldliness for the last couple centuries, mm-hmm. right? In which all of our philosophy and education is, is aimed with the idea that the good of life is to be found in this world mm-hmm. on this earth. Mm-hmm. So how is it maybe that, that particularly not only rhetoric in general, mm-hmm. but some kind of fantasy rhetoric mm-hmm. helps us to recognize that maybe, you know, like the happy life is not just, um, you know, is not just an earthly life. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's interesting you bring it up because that resonates with something that Gorgias said in Coming and Helen. He called uh, Logos, right, uh, a pharmacon, you know, that could both kill, right, a drug that can kill but oh, also wow. can heal. And he, mm-hmm. he called it magic. And uh, Aristophanes mm-hmm. actually accused Socrates of what he called psychogogia, right, uh, soul leading, which for there means conjuring, you know, the sort of enchantment. Okay. But Plato uses that word as his definition of, of, of rhetoric, Socrates' definition in the, in the Phaedrus, which is leading souls by by words, by logos, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we kind of fast forward to C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, he talks about what he says, other worlds, right? He found out what they're for by reading a Voyage to Arcturus, right? And he says that they're for spiritual adventures. They're, they're for taking us into the realm of the spirit, setting up circumstances that we can't, you know, uh, spiritual experiments, you might say, you know, thought experiments that we can't, we can't play out here, but we can see played out in these fantasy literatures. Uh, I think there he's, he's likely uh, echoing George MacDonald, who in Fantase talks about his, his main characters in Fairyland, and he, he slips into this sort of, like, uh, meditation and says excuse me, reader, for having slipped into the deeper fairyland of the soul, right? And okay. so wow. we can, yeah, we can play out, uh, you know, give voice and personages to, you know, personify ideas and concepts that we can only theorize. That's why I think uh, fantasy, science fiction, you know, they're called speculative fiction, because we can theorize about things that we can't see play out in the real world. Mm-hmm. Do you have, it seems like some of that aspect of, like, dim- seeing that dimension of the soul, the hungers and maybe thirsts of the soul for something beyond this world, for, for maybe the source of this mm-hmm. world for God. Mm-hmm. 
uh, that it also seems that there's some aspect of, if we think about great Shakespeare plays, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, how often great Shakespeare plays have a, have a wedding at the mm-hmm. end, um, that maybe even something like the good of marriage mm-hmm. is somehow almost, I mean, is, is, is almost like a good of the soul that you can't just see from the outside. Yes. And it's partly why so many of these great tales and a lot of the, um, you know, the rom- romance stories mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. uh, and later were often some kind of combination of both a quest. Yes. Um, you know, a quest, a battle, but also some kind of beauty. Yeah. No, uh, uh, the four qualities that Tolkien talks about in fantasy. So or he talks about it in fairy stories. Fantasy is one of them. Mm-hmm. Recovery is, is another one. And that's where he talks about uh, Chestertonian fantasy on kind of a smaller scale. And uh, escape mm-hmm. is one that he's like, hey, you know, <laughs> I think we're mixing up when we condemn fantasy for escapism, the, the flight of the uh, deserter with the escape of the prisoner, right? Yeah. And the last yeah. one is is consolation. Mm-hmm. He talks about the eucatastrophe, um, this amazing turn at the end of fairy stories that often happens that mm-hmm. that makes us feel the sort of divine providence, right? This the goodness of the world around us. Um, and uh, I think that last one might be what you're kind of talking about there, you know, with the with the wedding or you know we we have the battles, we have the quest, yes. but it ends on almost an amazing note, a miraculous mm-hmm. note of of goodness or or consolation. Yeah, and and that in part we don't discover this about ourselves unless, in a way, someone tells us or <laughs> tells us these stories, and we begin to say, "Oh, wait a second, I I could be like that." Yeah, yeah. right. I I could be like that. Um, you know, that great hero. Yeah. Um, perhaps somehow, you know. And I think when we hear that, at least, you know, I think it's always a fun question to ask people after they see a movie <laughs> with you know which with which character did you identify the most? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we naturally kind of want to imitate uh, some. Per, some character and mm-hmm. and we really want to imitate maybe you know like the ideals mm-hmm. uh that we see in that character yeah i mean i think uh you asked you know before like how can it go wrong and it is you know there is this sort of escapism where you're just like i just want to see stuff that's not you know around me which can be fine for a diversion but mm-hmm. when you don't come back and you just get lost that could be a problem but uh looking at the tradition that's why it's fun to see someone like Socrates in the Apology equate himself with like Achilles right mm-hmm. and then you start seeing this you know the these like I could be like Socrates. Achilles may be hard, but now when I start thinking about the courage that takes Socrates to, mm-hmm. you know, face death, uh, and compare that to Achilles in battle, I'm like, oh yeah, these are things that. Uh, so the the breadth of this sort of literature, I think, is really important to you know uh, be exposed to because uh, there's there's things that are definitely closer to home, uh, but the the epic literature is great, and the uh, sort of intermediary sort of stories can help us make connections with the you know I want to be Aragorn, um, but I'm not. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I think it's interesting too the way you mention uh, that sense of uh, where it can kind of help us to ha- almost this aspirational. Mm-hmm. And and the, C.S. Lewis writes an essay on three ways of writing for children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in there, I only remember two at the moment, but the, uh, the main two are one. He says there's a way of telling stories for children where you basically and and I think in some ways he's thinking of like what we would call young adult readers yeah. here. Um, but one way is basically where you kind of gratify their desire for adulation, um, their desire to be praised and worshiped. So you tell the (laughs) stories about the, you know, the, the person who gets rejected off the basketball team and then comes back and becomes the captain, Mm -hmm. right. You know, or the person who does, you know, the person who 
um, becomes, you know, it isn't popular at school, mm-hmm. but then eventually by the end is, you know, the most popular, you know, uh, the most popular girl or the most popular guy uh, in high school. And, and he, he says, basically, this is the same thing that in adult literature is where you, you solve the crime, you get the money, you mm-hmm. get the girl, you're on the beach. Mm-hmm. And he says, all of these are kind of somewhat gratifying our imagination and mm-hmm. they're gratifying our appetites and yeah. they're gratifying our ego. But he contrasts this with what he thinks is a true fairy story because the fairy story, he says, has a moral mm-hmm. dimension, yeah. which it calls for a kind of, that they, they, not, not just an external conversion, mm-hmm but an internal conversion. And he even goes so far as to say that reading them is like an ascesis. It's like an ascetical mm-hmm. work that when you read these stories, um, it almost challenges you to question your desires. Yeah, yeah. You know, are your desires merely to gratify your ego or are they to maybe deflate your ego and to discover something greater. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that I think ties it back to that tradition and rhetoric, the, to instruct, to delight, and to move. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, uh, the, the mythic tradition and the folktale tradition can be boiled down to instruction, right? Okay. Um, and sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like at the beginning of The Wizard of Oz, Frank Obama's like, we, we don't need moral instruction anymore. This is just meant to delight, right? Uh, but the the higher kind of movement, uh, you know, the, the, what George MacDonald and, and I believe, you know, Chesterton, Lewis, Tolkien or after uh, is, yeah, sure, it'd be great to instruct, it'd be great to delight, but it's really that movement, right? Uh, the inward reflection, but then also the sort of, uh, you know, uh, movement towards ascension, right? Uh, yeah. Elevation. And, yeah, and, and maybe in a way, um, I mean, I don't know, what, what, what do you think? Why is it that we're maybe one, so frightened, so like we just don't want to be instructed? <laughs> or then, but, but, but somehow like not wanting to be instructed, we haven't become wise. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, why? It, it, do, you, do you have any sense well, for yeah, why so, 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 maybe so moderns especially dislike one, instruction? One big, oh, well, I mean, we can go back to the oh. Republic, right? Which is when you get to the democracy, people, you know, kind of chastise teachers and students are running the show, yeah. um, you know, and cowardice becomes prudence and wisdom becomes, you know, uh, something that's belabored mm. or, you know, waste of time. Yeah. Um, and, right, then, so the, and I guess it's like that. It's like Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under yeah, the sun. <laughs> there's no problem today that, uh, that, that. Socrates and <laughs> Aristotle and Plato didn't yeah. somewhat encounter. Yeah. yeah, but one thing that I, I thought was interesting yeah. um, was that when you mentioned, you know, that sort of writing where it's like the wish fulfillment, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there, I think there's been a turn in some of the in some of the sort of you know uh, YA sort of stories, which is not you know the the unpopular person becomes the popular person, but yeah, just stay unpopular. Like there's you know like you're mm-hmm. uh, I one of my my dissertation director had, and I'm not going to do the accent. He was Greek and he had a thick <laughs> Greek accent, uh, but he he was started saying disparaging things about Mr. Rogers. We live in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, and he Mr. Rogers was close, and I was like, how do you not like Mr. Rogers? And, and his point. <laughs> was, look, I don't like you the way you are. I like you better than you are. And I was like, ah, okay. And so I think there is almost a movement of, no, you're fine just the way you are. There's no need to put effort into betterment, into perfection. Oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> why would you strive for that? That's just, you know, unattainable and not healthy, right? Mm-hmm. It's just going to cause you stress and anxiety. Um, and so I think that the uh, w- desire not to be instructed is that desire to, if I could kind of diagnose the the problem of the age, it's a uh, desire not to feel anxious, not to feel stress, to avoid mm. anything that might m- cause a friction internally. Yeah. Uh, and so, but, but in many ways it's, I mean, do, do you think it, is it working? Oh no, <laughs> no! I think that's the ailment of the age, right? Yeah. Uh, it might be a bit of it might be the same or a bit of an extension of what uh, Walker Percy might have called the modern malaise, right? Mm-hmm. Just the you know, let's let it's fine. 
Let's, yeah. <laughs> everything's yeah. fine. But somehow when we say that, the one thing that we believe is that it's not fine. Yes. Um, that there's something strange that, that somehow like when we're dealing, when we feel anxious, mm-hmm. um, somehow the more we can feel that and yet act anyway. Yeah. Uh, somehow like, uh, you know, the anxiety, it's not that it goes away or the fear goes away, uh, but that we learn how not to react, yeah. but to respond. Yes. Uh, and this seems like Aristotle. And I was actually even, you know, C.S. Lewis, I think mm-hmm. in letter 29 of the screw tape letters, <laughs> talks all about courage and cowardice. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he, he even says something powerful there where he says it's, he says, maybe, I can't remember if he says thousands or, but thousands of men, as he puts it, discovered their cowardice for the first time in the First World War, mm-hmm. their own personal cowardice, and in doing so, discovered the moral world for the first yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so sometimes it's this recognition um, that I almost feel like he wants to whisper and say, like, you too? <laughs> like, like, you too are a coward? Mm-hmm. And for me to be able to say, yes, mm-hmm. I, I too am a coward. I struggle with fear. Mm-hmm. Fear sometimes has gotten the best of me. I struggle with anger. Anger sometimes has gotten the best of me. And in different ways, I think these stories tell us a little bit about that often our fears and angers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, our no, fight think, yeah. or flight yeah. are, are, you know, are, are, I'm not doing that well with them. Yeah. And then when we begin to articulate, I'm not doing well, Rather than just saying I'm, it's okay. Yes, it's it's good that I'm exist. I'm not a horror. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm. I, it wouldn't. The world wouldn't be better off without me. Yeah. But on the other hand, when I can say that I'm struggling, it's mm-hmm. almost like in uh, in 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 one of the gospels where Jesus says something like, basically, a blind guides leading the blind. Yeah. And part of the things we're supposed to recognize is that I'm, I'm blind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know how to put it. Somehow it's this very recognition of our failures that allows us to move forward. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, yeah. so, so it's not, I don't know how to put it. Like I, yeah. I, I, I just, anyway, for me, I find both, you know, in my own life and in my teaching, uh, somehow creating that space. Yeah. No, I try to tell my students when we read, when we read Platonic dialogues, it was like, you know, everyone, everyone wants to be Socrates, but I'm like, you're not, you're the other guy, right? That's, that's the problem. Uh, And you got to listen to other people. I think, you know, there's a great example we were talking about uh, just recently uh, in the fourth volume of, you know, uh, season of of Stranger Things. They they had a, 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 character that was new, uh, who was like, you know, really big, uh, into like Dungeons and Dragons was like doing all these battles. Uh, but it turned out that he was a coward. Right. And he went faced with that. Oh. He's like, look, I'm not the guy, right. Uh, I'm wow. not going to do the brave stuff, but eventually a part of the arc is that he does face that. And so, you know, part of the fantasy is, helping us see and experience things that maybe wouldn't other experience, but mm-hmm. there's always that danger of, you know, having it just be false. Right. And then realizing, hopefully the nice thing about, let's say, see this fantasy was that it showed the person being sort of diverted into a fantasy mm-hmm. world faced with needing to be courageous and not, but finding that as a weakness in himself yeah. and then being no, like, no, really now I'm going to be, now I'm going to be courageous. I'm like, okay, so that's what stories can do. Yeah. Really. And, and it may be that partly what we begin to recognize is the real quest that each of us are, is, is each of us is on is the quest of our own lives, yeah. right? Really like, who am I going to choose to become? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not just who was I and how do I live in accord with that, but how do I become the person I could become yeah. 
if I began to try to <laughs> right live my life a bit more intentionally yeah. um, and begin to see maybe myself as a story. You know, when we have in John one, right? John, you know, in the beginning was the, the word, word, and the word was God. Uh, we often think of the word as just kind of maybe philosophical truth, but the word is also story. Yeah. So in the beginning was the story. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, so and, and maybe in a way we tell ourselves false stories about ourselves. Yeah. No. And, and to learn that true story. Yeah, I think it's great because I mean, what you have there is is you know kind of circles back to everything we've been talking about because you have the word logos, right? That mm-hmm. in the Greek is anything from word to argument to to account uh, to you know uh, the. the the reason of the, the cosmos, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in the Latin, it gets bifurcated into ratio et oratio, to wisdom and eloquence, okay. right? Uh, yeah. And so being able to see the reason as a story, right? I think of St. Arrhenius who said that God had three great speeches, um, creation, mm-hmm. uh, the Bible, and the incarnation, right? Yeah. Uh, and so obviously those, those are those are rational. Those are also stories, but they're also what Arrhenius called the great speeches of God. And we can approach creation like a book or like mm-hmm. a story. And, and so seeing all those things sort of looped together and then seeing ourselves as you know a story in progress it's it's trite but i think it's also true uh that yeah we can write our you know write our stories or at least participate in our own uh our own narratives which you know goes to show that uh some of the trite things of today uh some of the things like you know it's not a bad thing to not want to be anxious i think both you know progressives want to move away from the bad and the conservatives want to go back to a good but we can agree that something's not working yeah and you know and anxiety is not a good in and of itself but it can lead to good. So mm-hmm. being always able to see, yeah, we, there's, there's some agreement, even in our disagreement, I think is the beginning to, uh, you know, both good argument and good storytelling. Yeah. I think I, I saw recently something from Jordan Peterson where he said, don't compare yourself to others, compare yourself to the person you were yesterday mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. try to become a better version of that tomorrow. And I think when we do that, we begin to discover that we're on, that we're kind of little stories. Yeah. And I think in doing so we can find kind of a little sense of uh, peace and direction mm-hmm. Um, as, as, as we close, I wanted to ask you three questions. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what's a book you've been reading lately? <laughs> um, I've been actually reading some of the works of uh, Charles Williams. Um, mm. And so I've gotten through uh, one of the Inklings, the oddest Inkling, uh, gotten through uh, his Descent into Hell and the War in Heaven. But mm. the one that I'm in the middle of okay. right now, which is a great, you know, I'm having so much fun with it, is Umberto Echo's Name of the Rose, uh, mm. which is a book I've heard that everybody owns, but nobody reads. Uh, or at least that was true in the 80s, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, and, and second question, uh, what's a daily practice that you do to, you know, kind of find meaning and purpose in your uh, own story? <laughs> yeah, I'd say uh, just recently again, uh, I try to both exercise, like ride, you know, go, go ride on a bike. But at the same time, uh, I get into audiobooks a lot. So I start uh, with a, a chaplet of St. Michael and my, uh, my daughter actually made me one for my wrist uh-huh. uh, on audio and try to meditate on that. And then I listen to, uh, listen to audiobooks while I, while I go uh, on a bike ride for a few miles. So that's great. And, and last question is, is maybe what's one big kind of falsehood that you believed about God uh, that, that kind of like, Hurt you, and and when you discovered the truth, how did it help? Oh, that's a tough one. Let's see, a falsehood that I believed about God that hurt me. I guess you know it is one of those things that if I think about it, right, there is the sense. I wouldn't say it's a falsehood, but I understood it falsely, which sure. was that everything's going to be all right. 
Yeah. And uh, when you come up in times and things aren't all right, mm-hmm. it makes you wonder, you know, what what your relationship is, right? You know, and and, uh, and so rethinking what it means that everything's going to be all right in the sort of you know scheme of things uh, that that's helped me uh, to sort of deal with the things that weren't all right yeah. uh, and to understand my relationship with God. So. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. John Hasso, thanks so much for being with us today and really appreciated your uh, just really kind of opening up the tradition of imagination and rhetoric and Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton with us. So thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.